0: This has always been Mi'kma'ki and it's going to be fully Mi'kma'ki again and that means all of our unceded territories. This whole colonial project is just going to be a drop in the bucket.
1: Welcome to Shades of Green, a podcast series exploring environmental justice here on unceded Mi'kmaq territory. I'm your host, Sadie Beaton. In this series so far, we've been reflecting on how some of the ways that many of us relate to our environments carry troubling legacies. Legacies of colonialism and white supremacy, among other things. We've also heard about how environmental justice movements have grown up to resist these systems of oppression, challenging more mainstream environmental organizations to acknowledge their own complicities and make the kinds of changes that can help us leave these racist and classist ways behind us. We've explored a little bit about the ways that environmental justice aims to dismantle the systems of oppression that allow environmental injustices to continue. But it's not just about tearing down the bad things. It's also powerfully asking us to imagine futures that none of us alive today have ever seen. Futures where we can live, work, play, And do whatever we do together on these lands, humans and non-humans. Environmental justice centers the visions of black, indigenous, and people of color in imagining these environmentally just futures. So in this, our final episode of the season, we're going to spend some time dreaming about this Mi'kma'ki of the future. We're going to hear from folks on the front lines of visionary work to build these futures, which interestingly means that we'll also be visiting the past. After all, so much of the history we've learned is incomplete. And to really imagine a just future, we have to first relearn some of the difficult truths that have shaped us. All of this takes listening skills and the kind of work that stretches our hearts and our imaginations. But I feel like it's also the kind of work that can help sustain us in the present as we're trying to find this path out of the intersecting crises of climate, biodiversity, and injustice. We're going to be talking about things like reconciliation, reparations, decolonization, And futurisms, all possible frameworks we can use to shape our futures where we no longer have to fight for environmental justice, we can finally enjoy peace and friendship here on unceded Mi'kmaq territory. As always, let's begin by acknowledging the unceded territory that we're broadcasting from. This is Mi'kmaqi. For many thousands of years, the Mi'kmaq people have worked to walk gently on these lands. They offered help and healing to the first European travelers here, and they shared their knowledge to help them survive. Eventually, they signed treaties of peace and friendship. These treaties did not deal with surrender of lands and resources, but actually recognized Mi'kmaq title and established rules for what was to be an ongoing relationship between nations. Understanding these treaties is really important if we're going to have a just and decolonized future here in Mi'kmaqi. They were signed in the 1700s, but with a careful eye towards modeling good relations and looking after future generations. Mi'kmaq rights holder and activist Rebecca Moore is going to underline some facts about the Peace and Friendship Treaties for us.
2: Here in East Coast Canada and some of the states, we are in unceded Mi'kmaq territory that is unsurrendered territory where the Mi'kmaq people still hold inherent title. In Mi'kmaq territory, we have the strongest treaties in Canada with the Crown international treaty law supersedes Canadian law. So we are a nation that's equal to Canada. We are not an, an indigenous nation under Canada. And this is via the Peace and Friendship Treaty of uh, 1752. So our territory, goes all the way up to like Gaspé, Quebec and all the way down to Massachusetts and like in between. What we have to realize is that there's more than one nation here that has jurisdiction on this land. So, like, it's not just Canada. It's Mi'kmaq Nation also has jurisdiction here.
1: I also want you to hear from Mi'kmaq rights holder, treaty scholar, and land defender Michelle Paul. We have treaties. We, we have to uphold it. If, if the colonial power isn't going to honor it, then, then what are we to do? We
3: must resist, you know? And that's, that's what um, LC was all about. That's what Alton Gas is all about. That's certainly what I don't know more is all about. We've been resisting for 500 years. When are they going to re- realize we're not going to stop resisting? They, they have to honor our treaty. That's the end game for me anyways, you know. I want to see, I wanna see our, our treaty upheld
1: and honored. I, I want to see it in my lifetime. Michelle is talking about Mi'kmaq land and treaty defense struggles that have taken place over the last decade or so here, including the resistance to Alton gas, which you may have heard all about in episode three, and which is ongoing in this territory. I've been really inspired experiencing organizing with amazing folks like Michelle and Rebecca, who have rooted their vision and action in treaty. Even beyond the sheer legal strength of these assertions, there's also the amazing idea that the Mi'kmaq ancestors who signed these treaties signed them with a visionary consideration of our future here today, which is like the deep science fiction future for them. I've also learned a lot from black scholars and activists revisioning histories and futures where black bodies are safe, centered, and like fully existing. This work is so vital when there's so many oppressive forces bent on erasing and degrading these lives. I'm really grateful for all these visionary people helping build these paths because sometimes I struggle with imagining the future. Like, I'm more motivated by tearing things down, I guess, like getting the Cornwallis statue taken down here in Djibouti. But I find it harder to envision and build towards the future I want to see for my own kids and potential grandkids, let alone how it might align with the visions of my friends and neighbors in Mi'kmaq and African Nova Scotian communities. When I was working on the Shades of Green interview series back in 2016, I asked a lot of different folks to imagine a world where environmental justice had been achieved. It was kind of a naive question, but it was really interesting hearing the different places it brought people. For some people, they could almost taste the vision of the future. But others found the question challenging or even demoralizing to reflect on. I want to start out with writer, poet, and community activist Elle Jones. She found it difficult to answer without reflecting on the sheer enormity of how much there is to undo around our relationships and really our ideas about everything.
4: You know, to undo this, I think then we have to rethink property. We have to rethink money. We have to rethink our relationship to each other and to animals and nature. And that's obviously a very, very long, long, long process, Um, you know, in a province so we can't even acknowledge like our basic treaty relationships you know are we going to like you know rethink how we think of property and land um you know so I think it's you know, we have to think philosophically different about the way we do things and I'm, I'm not exempting myself from that like I'm super the worst in terms of like plastic containers and stuff um but that's on a personal level i'm saying why because i work long hours and then you know i don't feel like i have the energy to cook and i'm not running around to the farmers market so you know i'm running into superstore and i'm getting something in a package so you know that relates to how much we work in society and what our compensation is and you know i had a success i'm saying you know when you start looking at just like one issue like why do people do x that's bad for the environment and there's a, it's not cuz people are stupid and don't care it's because you know we're conditioned by all these things um, you know, why do people eat fast food? Well, maybe it's the only thing in your day that's cheap enough to make you feel good. You know, you live in a food desert and your community has, you know, so it goes on and on like that. So you have to go back to those roots. And that's, I think, a very complex process.
1: And this sense of overwhelm is something I also heard from Mi'kmaq rights holders Wallace Nevin and Alan Knockwood. These two men have both done really important and visionary work in their communities and beyond. And um, We were sitting and chatting at Alan's kitchen table in Sabinegatik First Nation about what it feels like to imagine an environmentally just future.
5: I just can't, I can't get there. I can't put my mind around that. Yeah. I it, mean, I, just, mean, I must be singing John Lennon, you know. Mm-hmm. Imagine. But the thing about it, I mean of course, I mean this environmental issue is a problem, but it's only one of many problems that have been exacerbated by a structure that's put in place that keeps people down, especially Aboriginal populations. They keep us ignorant, uneducated, Dysfunctional. They promote the very few, and they tell the few that, hey, you're, you're, you're coming to this academic institute, we're paying $350,000 to educate you as a lawyer. You go back to your reserve, and what do you have to look forward to? A structure called Social Assistance that was created in 1964 because they couldn't figure out a way to, to legally administer our money to us. Why can't you spend $350,000 on, on me becoming an environmentalist and living off the land? Right, and Mm -hmm. knowing how to hunt fish and trap like my ancestors instead of us living and dying in a small little 5,000 acre community where we up until lately we were told go back to where you're from you know and and it sounds radical for me to speak this way but that's the truth Wallace is saying this sounds radical but but it doesn't sound radical (laughs) to me at all How, how can one envision things right But it's so much wrong. I mean, our whole community is wrong because the government created it to be wrong in the first place. They took the native people from 76 different communities and stuck them in two reserves in 1942. At the same time, the Jews in Warsaw were being put into uh, concentration camps. They took the Japanese and interned them at the same time. The Japanese in 1992 got a formal apology from the Canadian and American government, Yet. The people who centralize us—no one ever said we're sorry from taking you from your natural and historical hunting and fishing areas, your natural foraging areas, and shoving you into a system that's going to fail. Mm. And yet, you guys are going to be totally dependent on a structure called the federal government. So you ask the question: Yeah, what was going to look like if everything was all done? Wow. I would like to—I would love to find that answer too, because I am—I am at the bottom of this hole and I'm looking up at a real small, little, tiny slide at mm-hmm. the other end of it i'm still at the bottom i mean there's never going to be a perfect world but there, there has to be ways where we can save her and we're not destroying it you know hmm. I mean, there's no other place to move to this is it this is it. <laughs> you know a small little blue bubble in the air
1: Something that has really stuck with me about my conversations with so many folks on the front lines of this work, is part of what's hard about imagining environmental justice being achieved is that like, it means all of the injustices have to be gone. Environmental justice can't happen without all of the other kinds of justice because of how it's all so connected. And Alan is saying something so real when he asks, how can we envision things right when everything is so wrong? I spent lots of time feeling that, and so many of us have. So I guess I'm wondering in this episode, how we can acknowledge and work with this reality while also nourishing visions of what we might want to see instead. African-American cultural geographer and writer, Carolyn Finney has taught me a lot about the need to dig into these big questions in our environmental movements. And I was really struck by a simple but vital question she asks about sustainability.
6: I'm involved with a lot of people who are interested in environmental issues broadly defined, and sustainability probably is one of the top three words that you hear over and over again, right? And, you know, when I remember when I first heard years ago in the back of the 90s when I was getting involved in the international stuff, and, and I, you know, I was like, yeah, I, I loved the initial idea. What, how do we sort of sustain ourselves, our, how do we sustain a set of relationships with non-human nature and with each other, this is how I understood it, that actually are going to serve us well, and we can kind of move forward into the future, right? Of course, what then I start to understand over time is that, you know, we have to really examine those relationships. <laughs> we have to really examine those relationships with each other, with non-human nature, and get real about them. So, The question for me around sustainability is, what are we trying to sustain? Are we trying to sustain a set of relationships that serve some but not everyone, nor everything? Are we trying to just remain comfortable as possible for those of us who feel like we're comfortable? Are we trying to um, hold on to an idea of who we are that actually we need to let go of? And create something new and that's hard work and so we don't want to do that hard work because it's scary um what are we trying to sustain are we trying to sustain a sort of power dynamics a sort of a hierarchy that allows some people to make the decisions for everyone else and what about non-human nature everything else that's out there in the world you know is nonhuman human nature just there to be in service to us as human beings i mean so the question of sustainability is for me is how do we get at the reality and truth of those relationships, our complicity in those relationships? How do we own that and kind of really start to think about where do we go from that point, that point of truth. So when I think about emergence, that's when it gets exciting. Because I know you know, it's like uh, you know, you're down in the dark, you're down in the mud, right, with the stuff. It's dirty, it's messy, it's Nelly, it's uncomfortable. It's like, you know, it's hard to look good when you're in the mud. You know, all that is true. But the potential for, for something else to emerge because you actually got down in it. And not by yourself, right? We get down in it with each other. That's the possibility of something else emerging. Mm-hmm.
1: really appreciate how she's dug right into so many questions that are messy and uncomfortable for many of us in the environmental movement particularly. I also love how she emphasized the need to do this work of answering these questions collectively and that that's how we get towards letting go of some of those old ideas and practices so that we can make room for new relationships to emerge. These ideas really reminded me of how Mi'kmaq rights holder artist and metal fabricator Taylor Paul talked about her exhaustion shallow visions of reconciliation. Reconciliation is supposed to be about the restoration of friendly relations and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission defined it as an ongoing individual and collective process that will require participation from all those affected by the Indian residential school experience. But like the word sustainability,
7: reconciliation is really
1: getting thrown around by settlers.
7: Wish people understood the history that's been coverted for so long that actually, you know, really represents what needs to change because it's been so Eurocentric for so long that it's such a shock for most people to understand what actually happened, why things are the way they are. And I find that it's not even histories, it's real hard facts. They explain the trauma, the horrible things that happened, the resulting things that happened, the trickle-down effect, the generational effects, everything is explained by these hard facts that really do get down to what is reconciliation. And it's, it's things like, you know, my grandfather wasn't able to will anything when he died. It's, it's like no one was able to will him anything. Everything he made from his life was was subject to be taken by the Department of Indian Affairs. And that happened up until the 60s. It's hard facts like these that people don't understand when you're asking them to think about possibly sacrificing a small part of what they have or a way of doing things because so much was generated from exploitation for European settlers or colonization as a whole that... They thought we wouldn't be here to get any kind of compensation. They thought that we wouldn't be here to ask for reconciliation. Um, that is the hard truth. Genocide is a real thing, you know. It's, it's something that we're all healing from, that has impacted all of our lives. It's the reason my father couldn't be a father to me, you know, wholly, and uh, why I was a street kid. You know, I know he had it a lot, a lot worse than I did. It's these things, though, that are actual facts, like my grandmother raised him thinking every day he could not come home from school because legally the Canadian government could take him from school any day that she sent him for his whole elementary school life. How many white people live with that? None. <laughs> None. So, you know, it's it's these stresses that were legislated stresses that caused really stressful social situations, like, like social situations you wouldn't even believe. You know, my, my dad had to be hidden so that the Indian agent wouldn't find him. This is what we're dealing with. You want reconciliation, you're going to have to give up some of that profit that came from exploitation, that came from you not having to deal with those issues. That's the hard truth, and you need to understand why, and you need to understand why your government kept it from you. All these things that end up being social problems, but they were actually legislated to cause these social problems. It's still happening, it's still going on, but I wish, I wish people would do their own research, and I wish they would listen out because um, really, I'm, I'm going to put the responsibility back on you. I've got enough responsibility on my own, on my shoulders, and I'm going to put it back on all of you out there because I want you to think about this. I want you to get out there and ask questions that are respectfully researched by your own means. You know, do, do the groundwork first. Ask a, a good question. Start looking at facts. Start opening your ears to things because you know, the more you open your ears to things, the more life brings, the more you'll learn.
1: Taylor is really surfacing some uncomfortable truths there. And part of what I'm hearing from her is that we need to have a shared understanding of the truth about the past and present before we can really start talking about any reconciliation. Taylor's really helped me understand my responsibility as a settler, as a white person, to really get in there to listen and learn about the truths of what have happened on these lands that have been hidden from my gaze to ask better questions that can help us acknowledge our complicities and our responsibilities to repair harms. Mckermit rights holder and activist Barbara Lowe has also kept a skeptical eye on the way reconciliation gets talked about. Here she is expanding a little on those responsibilities to attend to the truths.
0: In any relationship, there's always going to be ups and downs, and it's how you manage those downs that makes the relationship a good one. Right. But to think that you're going to get in a relationship and it's going to be beautiful and wonderful every day is ridiculous. So we shouldn't expect it amongst mass groups of people either. It's how we work these things through. But if you've got a situation where, you know, the more powerful have abused the powerless and the more powerful is dictating the timeline for healing that's further abuse, And that's the reconciliation narrative that we're hearing about today. And also this idea that there's no accountability, that there's just, well, we're sorry. Isn't that enough? No, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. What are you sorry for and what are you going to do about it? And let's see it, right? Sorry doesn't mean anything to us anymore. In mm-hmm. fact, when somebody says they're going to apologize to us as indigenous people, we're like, duck. Because we know that when that apology is done, we will face settlers for the next several years saying, we apologize, what more do you want? And so it's meaningless to us because we're outnumbered 33 to 1. Those messages of reconciliation, those apologies, they are performances by the colonizer to other colonizers to show what good people they are. They're not speaking to us.
1: Ongoing discussions around reparations also brings up some of these same questions. I asked Dr. Ingrid Waldron, who researches environmental racism and environmental health inequities at Dalhousie University, about her thoughts on the connections between environmental justice and reparations.
8: So it's righting a wrong of the past because if you feel that reparations is a good thing, it's valuable, then you understand that The struggles that Aboriginal peoples and African Nova Scotian peoples continue to face today is a product of what's happened in the past. But you're not gonna convince the people who think, why don't they get over it? Um, It's the past, slavery is the past. Those are people who don't understand the intergenerational handing down of trauma. There's a historical handing down of inequality that's hard to overcome because I think also poverty is at the root of it. So the reasons why African Nova Scotians now are not flourishing in many areas of our society is directly related to what has happened in the past, and it's very difficult for somebody who's white who hasn't had that historical trauma Mm -hmm. to relate to that. That I understand, like it's difficult to understand that. So to me then, reparations should be about addressing structurally the factors and barriers existing in the social system that's preventing Aboriginal people and African Nova Scotian people from flourishing. I think it's much more obvious for Aboriginal peoples because there's a focus on the land. And I think it means respecting, you know, there are tangible things that I feel Aboriginal people have articulated in a way that African Nova Scotians have, because I think African Nova Scotians are still working out what that, what reparations means. Mm -hmm. For Aboriginal peoples, it's, respecting treaty rights, it's about land reclamation. Mm-hmm. It's about their extermination from the land. It's about the rights that they have to the things that were taken away from them. So they have practical, very well articulated demands. Um, for African Nova Scotians and the Africville issue, it's also about what was taken away from them, their neighborhoods, etc and wanting something back. And for some people, wanting something back means wanting some kind of financial compensation because for them, that's going to right the wrong. Mm -hmm. That's not going to, however, address continuing systemic exclusions and barriers that African Nova Scotians face. So if we just focus then on the economic reparations for a few group of people who are descendants of Africville, then we're not going to really address the issue. If we, however, come together as African Nova Scotians and understand that reparations means addressing the structural violence that continues to plague the African Nova Scotian community, causing them to not flourish mm-hmm. in all sectors of our society. If we don't understand that, then reparations will mean nothing.
1: What I really heard from Dr. Waldron and others I've talked to is that a crucial part of reparations is about fixing even dismantling the systems that may come from the past but continue to work in the present to oppress marginalized groups of people, particularly black people. I also asked lifelong African Nova Scotian community activist Lynn Jones a little bit about the case for reparations here. As Dr. Waldron mentioned, she's been working with a group of African Nova Scotians to articulate some demands. Here she is describing the global premises for reparations and how they apply here.
9: So the four premises... Are to look, first of all, of the millions of African people that were enslaved and um, the fact that we now have descendants of those people that were enslaved and um, that they're old for the forced removal from their homeland of Africa. I love that because, first of all, people don't realize there's millions and millions and there's always controversy over how many million. We're not talking, In um, many of the uh, issues, I mean, people talk today about white slavery, different things. We're, we're talking millions of people and who were forced from their homeland within Africa. So that's the premises. First, they're old. They're old money. That's one of the things for their removal, and uh, they didn't come voluntarily. With that comes the second premise, that they require compensation, and you notice I'm not just saying uh, monetary, I'm saying compensation for the loss of their culture. So many groups that were also enslaved or, or forced or whatever, they were able to retain much of their culture, and part of their culture includes their language. So, for example, um, using the example of um, Mi'kmaq people, for example, they have their language, mind you, they're losing their language and they lost their language along the way, whereas for African people, there's no people that have been enslaved of those millions that were permitted to obtain their language. Now, you can say, well, how did that happen? Because they were intentionally put on ships where they couldn't speak their language so the best way to annihilate the people and get rid of them is put them on ships where nobody speaks your language and then of course what are you forced? you can't you have nobody to talk to so it's much easier for example to to enforce the colonizer's language whether it be portuguese english whatever so that was number two, is um, loss of their culture, of which language is just one of them. The third thing is that for reparations, people are old for the work that their ancestors undertook for free. There was absolutely no money exchange, none. Money was not a commodity, a trading commodity or any other commodity. Uh, for African people and so imagine the generations of work that is old because they were not paid for their labor and imagine the labor and finally for the fourth uh, premise of reparations is the segregation and discrimination that was uh, uh, sanctioned by the countries and that continues, that was perpetuated long after slavery and, and, as a matter of fact, continues to be perpetuated. And I often use myself as an example growing up in the, the town of Churro, although we, as a black, black people in that, that town, we were physically located on the edges of the town as were all the other black communities across the country, most black communities across the country. Although you may be from certain place, you actually did not live in the core of the place. So, and all, many of the activities that you took part in or that you did included uh, segregation, and certainly we, nobody was untouched by uh, discrimination. So, who is old has to be all African people. There's no exception, because it, how we got here um, originally is through um, a system that did not favor us, and even you may say um, uh, in recent years that hasn't been the case in terms of the migrations here, but those people, all African people originate from Africa, and Africa did not go untouched by the institution of slavery, whether it be as traders as as um, countries exploiting the land, uh, the resources of Africa. So we, none of us of uh, African people are untouched. So we're all old.
1: It's really a lot to make amends for, isn't it? It can be challenging even to really acknowledge the enormity of the injustices of the transatlantic slave trade. And that is just one part of the overall colonial project. I'm grateful to folks from these communities who are articulating how we might be able to begin to make amends. We're talking about the past here, but I also want to bring in the concept of Afrofuturism. Until last winter, I thought Afrofuturism was a kind of science fiction, jazz music, maybe, <laughs> but I got a chance to learn a little bit more about this amazing storytelling and visioning tool that works to disrupt and challenge our whitewashed narratives about possible futures. I got to learn about futurisms a little bit as part of an amazing Black Lives Matter Halifax reading group. It also feels really relevant to this conversation because, essentially, environmental justice is also asking us to envision futures on these lands, outside of the white supremacist and colonial narratives that dominate our institutions and organizations. Shia Ishak is going to introduce the concept for us. Shia is a Kenyan-Canadian designer, craftswoman, community organizer, and DJ based in Halifax.
10: I define, like, Afrofuturism as a movement that encompasses literature, philosophy, music, and art, and that features futuristic and or, like, science fiction themes that all incorporate elements of Black diasporic history and culture. And I find it to be, like, an awesome tool because it can help to connect various experiences of people of African descent that want to envision, like, futures where our Black bodies are resilient and boundless free and fearless. What I find, like, really awesome about the idea of futurisms when it comes to racialized or, like, marginalized bodies is that there are so many branches in addition to Afrofuturism. There are thinkers of Indigenous futurisms and, like, queer futurisms and all of these frameworks can, like, intersect and they all, at the end of the day, get the bare bones, strive to help these people envision utopias where they are as resilient and as strong as they can be I think or like where they have the freedom to feel like a spectrum of things like but on their own terms when you're thinking of the land that you come from as people whose bodies were taken away like from the shores of West Africa during like the transatlantic slave trade when it comes to environmental justice like and thinking of Afrofuturism I don't know I think it has to do with Maybe just like connecting back to ways of knowing the land that you come from and how people interacted with it before any kind of colonial powers snatched your your right to live on that land and use the resources on that land and care for your family on that land. Because with colonialism, it's about like taking, right? It's about taking away. And I think with something like Afrofuturism or any kind of futurism of like marginalized folks, like it's about giving back to you and giving back to the people in some way, like deeper truth of like who you are or what your history might be.
1: I'm really just getting my mind around the possibilities of this storytelling and visioning tool. It also makes me reflect on the kinds of stories we consume about the future in our movies and our news stories even the way environmentalists paint our possible futures. So often the black and indigenous folks are either missing from the narrative or like eking out these really marginal existences in slums, and climate disaster zones, in droughts, famines. I think Afrofuturism and indigenous futurisms are often looking to the deep past pre-colonization, but there's inspiration to be found in the more recent past too. For example, here's Dr. Carolyn Finney again. She's describing a 20th century black community in Michigan.
6: I was in Michigan a couple of years ago for the first time. And there's this great, there's a community that used to be there, a black community called Idlewild. And they took me, because now it's kind uh, kind of a historical site. It's amazing. It's around this beautiful lake. So back in the 1920s up until the 60s. Beautiful lake, they had images where black people would kind of go horseback riding and swimming and camping and live in houses around the lake. And this was also it was called the Chitlin Circuit, which in the United States is where you had all these famous black musicians and singers who would come through there also to perform in Idlewild. So, and what was really amazing about Idlewild was that black people who moved from the south coming north, you know, looking for better opportunity. They, they created this community. One of the most amazing things about the community is when you walk around, what's still there is all the street signs and the street signs that they put in represented either where they come from. So I don't know if there was a street like named Louisville, for instance, or what they were aspiring to. So they would have names like Serenity road or righteous road. I think a picture of righteous road, because that was just way too cool you know, the amazing thing is they and you see the images from that time, you see what they created. So during Jim Crow, it didn't mean they couldn't create this way to be in the outdoors, be in the space, feel safe, feel good, feel joy, have a full and rich life. It doesn't mean the other stuff wasn't happening. So, you know, it's kind of holding those two things historically to understand that, you know, now we get in the present, you know, all that stuff doesn't just fade away because it
1: was in the past. Have you ever heard of Idlewild? I knew it was an outcast album, but I didn't know it had been a real place. The story made me wonder about all the other stories I don't know, especially here in Mi'kma'ki, where African Nova Scotians have over 400 years of largely rural presence on these lands. I want to bring Shai Ishak back into the conversation. She's going to talk a little bit more about the role of reclaiming and reframing past histories as part of the work to reshape our futures. Towards justice.
10: This amazing activist and artist named Chanupa Hanska Lugar, who is from Standing Rock and uh one of the things that he was saying was he was challenging the idea of like decolonizing, like what does it mean to decolonize and like what it like versus like what would it mean to like reindigenize. Rather than withdraw ourselves from like a colonial mindset where we would still maybe have to like work within the structures that exist from its its horrible yet glorious legacy, like he actually used the word glory and horror of colonialism, I was like, whoa, I can't believe you just said, because it's kind of true. I don't know. Anyways, rather than do that, we have to maybe like revert to our original thinking, go back to our like indigenous ways of knowing the land and the world. So like, to like decolonize, I think I would say like, we'd have to change the language and like, like re-indigenize so we can really contextualize where we are. And where this whole time, like we've been, yeah, to reindigenize, I think, really calls for us to really consider the fact that before any European colonial powers like came on this land, there were people who were thriving and had their own systems, their own way of sovereignty. To reindigenize, and like when you're thinking of reindigenizing and like being connecting to knowing the land in those ways, I think it's inherently attached to like this idea of environmental justice right because if you're thinking of going back to those ways then you're obviously connecting with like the land Mm -hmm. to like build like the futures that we want for our families and our communities.
1: I want to bring Ariel Deranger into this conversation too. She's an indigenous climate justice activist and a member of Chippewan First Nation. Because this sense of reconnection to the land sounds so much like what she was dreaming about when I asked her to imagine a future where environmental justice had been achieved here on Turtle Island.
11: So to me, it is about reconnecting not just um, our, our ideology of connection to land, but our physical, mental, and spiritual being gets reconnected to place. And we start to see the land as these places that we need to be building and working with in a symbiotic relationship. And that this idea of like permaculture, which is a white terminology, which native people would would be like, Oh, well we do that all the Like if you broke down the definition of permaculture in my community of Fort Chippewan to some of the people up there, they'd be like, Oh, well, we've been doing that. Like our trap lines are basically giant permaculture routes that Mm -hmm. we build up, you know, pathways and we know where to pick berries and we we nurture those places for berries because we know that the moose or the caribou will come to certain places if we nurture these other places and leave these massive permaculture um, um, plots of land. And that is for me, like decolonization is that. It's about like learning to see the land in a more holistic state and that everything changes because then you have a much more deeper respect for those river systems, for the lichen on the trees, for the, for the muskeg in the ground, for the waterfalls in the mountains that see these river systems, the glaciers, to all of these things become relatable and interconnected. Um, I, I don't know how you would say taste or sound like, but it, it just is that reconnection. Like That is what decolonization could provide us if we're willing to do the work to decolonize the way we view everything, it's not just about the environmental movement, but decolonization only works if it's across the board, through economics, through commerce, through trade, through the, the, the development of those resources. Because Native people did, you know, dig up things and sell them and, you know, turquoise and gold and all of these things, but they did it in a more symbiotic relationship that had balance to it and so for me decolonization is a restoration of balance of our relationship with mother earth and it would change everything.
1: I love the way she kind of gently puts permaculture in its place there and that relationship with the land that Ariel is describing as decolonization also reminds me of the answer that Mi'kmaq rights holder drummer and filmmaker Catherine Martin shared with me for the same question.
12: Elizabeth Penashway is an environmentalist from Labrador and she has been, for the last 18 years, paddling the Churchill River to Goose, ba- or Goose Bay or Muskrat Falls, just in, in recognition of reclaiming and maintaining our traditional ways. And she, I went with her last summer, and she um, greeted the animals. She talked to the bear, like we saw the bear come out with their cubs, and she says, you know, the bear saying, Hi, Elizabeth! look at my babies and thank you very much for caring and and continuing to take care of us. And I think, I loved that trip because of her view that it's not the people, the animals, we're all connected, we need to preserve everything in order to preserve our life. So once in a while we would stop and she would never touch the water in the big river because the clear cutting by the uh, Muskrat Falls project in Churchill Falls, that's how the uh, mercury comes in when you clear cut, it, it's in your earth and so it goes down into the water. And so that has been had a major impact on the animals and we eat those animals. They still eat those animals, those fish. So she, um, sh- she would stop by the rivers, the brooks that came down from the mountain and we would drink the water. And I was just amazed that we could drink the water from those brooks. And I thought all the time about the future, how, how important it is that in 10 generations, seven generations from now, the young people and the people who are alive at that time will be able to drink the water right out of the brooks like we still can. And I think um, time is of the essence. So the future, how do I see it? I see a lot of young people and older people saying, thank goodness that our ancestors seven generations ago stopped this disastrous movement. Thank goodness we can drink the water, and thank goodness we breathe air, and we don't have to package it and get it sent to countries or to our own country so we can breathe. So I just see, you know, allowing us to, allowing the future to have what we have.
1: Catherine manages to tell a beautiful story and also to weave in so many elements of what we've been talking about in terms of finding that connection to the land and to its creatures, and that sense of looking back to look ahead. Except in this case, she's asking us to look ahead, to look back, so that we can act with the future in mind. Anyway, time is of the essence. Here's Mi'kmaq rights holder and treaty defender Michelle Paul, who you also heard from at the beginning of the episode.
3: I think it's time. I
1: really do. I think it's... I I don't
3: want to say it's long overdue, because I I think that goes without saying, but what I would like to see happen... um, with Treaty Law is is more education and and more uh, assertions and ultimately uh, Treaty Law being honored. I think it's that's what it's going to take. This word of reconciliation—that's just a word. You have to uh, really step up to the plate and put your money where you put the words into action. Really. Um, it's more than overdue. It's, it's the foundation of what this so-called country was uh, founded on, so-called founded on.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: There's so much undoing to do of um, colonization that I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Like, you know, what do I say? It's time for them to give back the land. It's time for them to do that. I don't even know how to say it, Sadie. Yeah. But what I do know is that as First Nations people, we do need our land back because there's nothing that we can do to be on equal footing without it. And as far as taxation goes and, and the way that they draw revenue from the lands, basically, and from extracting from the land and from, you know, that's where all the, all the revenue comes from the resources that essentially belong to us. So there's got to be some giving back of something, but I don't know what that looks like, but I what I would like to see is the honouring of the treaty. And what that would entail um, would definitely be a close examination of the treaty, line by line, word by word. And I think it would shock a whole lot of people what it really says and what it really means because the foundation of this so-called nation or country of Canada is right now founded on treaty. And what we really are on right now, or... The reality that a lot of people live in is a lie. It is a, a harsh, totally swallow. Like, it's called a false claim. Like, I own my house here, right? And I pay property tax, but it's a false claim because because of Aboriginal title. No, no legitimacy because only Aboriginals can perfect title. The government cannot perfect title. And that concept alone, a lot of people don't understand it because it's not explained to people, right? So there's so many things in law that people don't understand because they're
13: they're
1: not taught. Um, <laughs> I'm remembering what L. Jones was saying earlier in the episode, too, about the idea that to achieve environmental justice, we'd have to shift the whole way that we think about property, our whole relationship to the land. As Michelle Paul is describing, the Peace and Friendship Treaties actually offer a decolonized framework for that. I also wanted to share Rebecca Moore's vision of a future in Mi'kma'ki because she gets really specific about what it could look like to harness the power of the Peace and Friendship Treaties for environmental justice.
2: And with our inherent rights that we have under international treaty law, we have, like, all kinds of cool rights. In relation to energy, we have um, the rights to sell our wares, so that's anything that we create using our natural resources, and we also have best advantage in trade. and. So with knowing that, I don't see any reason why we could not produce our own electricity via like clean and renewable energy because clean energy comes from, you know, the sun and the wind and things like that. So there's no reason why we can't harvest our own clean energy, like harvest our own sun power and then with our best advantage in trade, sell that back to Everyday consumers in our territory. So, like Indigenous and non Indigenous consumers alike. And with that notion, especially in this time where we have to transition off of fossil fuels and we have to do it soon. So, under treaty uh, law, us as Mi'kmaq Nation, we don't have to wait for the government of Canada, they don't have to permit us to do this and that. Like we don't have to go under their bureaucracy because we are our own nation and we can permit ourselves in and amongst ourselves to do that. Uh, We can take initiative there. So that's kind of like also where time is of the essence. It's sort of like a fast track to the switch to clean and renewable energy here in Mi'kmaq. So it's also extremely appealing that way. Because, you know, where would you rather buy your energy if you had the option? Would you rather buy your, buy your utility from a dirty fossil fuel like coal coal produced energy from um, energy monopoly of Amera? Or would you rather buy clean energy produced by an indigenous company where the funds go back into these indigenous communities that still you know, some of them don't even have clean water, for an example, you know what I mean? And so for me, like, I don't know, but like, I'm really not a fan of living in that province like Nova Scotia, where 95% reliant on coal. In this day and age, and like we, we opened up a coal mine in Duncan, and celebrated it in 2017. And that's extremely backwards. So I feel like, even when I turn on my heat or my lights or whatever, or take a shower, like a hot shower, like I know I can feel that cold on, on my back, you know, like I feel like guilty, but we're all sort of pushed into this corner, like in th- against the wall because we don't really have a choice right now. So I feel like it would be really emancipating to give people that choice of, of whether to choose, you know, their utility from fossil fuel or from from clean and renewable and so this would take obviously investment and organizing but it's it's definitely a possibility for the future and something that I think people should really consider and look into yeah because our um our treaty it's not just Migma like a Mi'kmaq treaty. We didn't sign it just by ourselves. It's actually everybody's treaty, everybody's peace and friendship treaty to uphold our collective peace and friendship treaty together.
1: I always get shivers when I listen to Rebecca talk about treaty because she's young. She's focused she makes me believe that these futures are real. She also motivates me to think about my role in helping create this kind of world. Shia Ishak and I talked a little bit about how non-Indigenous folks can help build a decolonized future here too.
10: The Mi'kmaq people have been fighting for their sovereignty before like either of us were even present on that land. So like I feel like a decolonized future would mean that we really have to look towards the leaders who are fighting to not just be like allies, but like politicized accomplices that can help work towards a future of uh, sovereignty for them. We have to not just like listen, but like once we've listened, those who have more power to like make any kinds of changes, be it like policy or the, those kind of bigger decisions. If we have to like reindigenize, like that means we like totally would have to really work towards like restructuring the institutions that have the power to make those changes. They're so strong and it doesn't feel like they're going anywhere. So it would mean that we'd have to like, there would have to be serious measures taken to like restructure who can make those decisions. And, and if it means having an all indigenous staff, then so be it we would need to like get rid of our military state forces I think we'd have to like get rid of prison and find different alternatives to like punitive structures because that's not the way that things were like we'd have to look at all these like big institutions that like take so much of our power away and see how they can be restructured in a way that doesn't like totally dehumanize people
1: over and over in this series We hear from folks on various kinds of front lines of these movements, underlining the importance of listening, not just listening on its own, but also taking up what we've heard to push for the really deep changes we need. But also I was kind of amazed by how many folks I talked to highlighted the need to abolish prisons as part of our environmental justice future. It's a reminder that environmental justice really is transformative justice. I want to bring in Barbara Lowe again here, because she's going to paint a really great picture of a future in Mi'kma'ki that really underlines the justice piece.
0: First of all, this is going to be, this has always been Mi'kma'ki, and it's going to be fully Mi'kma'ki again, and that means all of our unceded territories. This whole colonial project is just going to be a drop in the bucket of our whole time. What will Mi'kma'ki be like? Well, there won't be any prisons. There won't be any hunger. There'll be a lot less disease. There'll be happier people. This mental illness epidemic that's going on, which I prefer to call a a normal response to abnormal conditions, will be gone. And, you know, people wouldn't be wanting. People wouldn't want be thieving. People wouldn't be um, needing to self-medicate with, with harmful drugs and alcohol and all of those things, right? There wouldn't be patriarchal values, so... You know, there mm-hmm. were there would be much less violence. Okay. Violence was abhorrent in our culture initially. You know, it was you know you didn't just go beating up people that you disagreed with, and um, you know our chiefs used to and our people used to deliberate for days and days and days before considering going to war, and then when war happened it was pretty much over after the first body fell you know the land and the waters would be lusher and would be starting to repair themselves again there would be more than enough for everybody i would suggest that we would return to using the waterways as our highways rather than roads because those were the original highways in canada mm-hmm. and they make the most sense and require the less maintenance of course with Mingmo, we're water people right like you know We like to go to our oceanfront homes in the summer and up the river in the winter. That's how foo-foo we are. (laughs) Right? So, you know, it would be like it was before. Now, I'm not saying we're all going to go back and live in Wigwams because we're also contemporary people. And we also like new things. If, some, if you, you show us something that is cool and it works, you'll use it, right? When we first saw iron pots, we were like, hallelujah, we can take these things with us. We don't have to go to the same campsite every time, right? <laughs> right? You know, but there are other things where it's like, no, we're not going to pick that up, right? The internet, we picked that right up. That's supersonic smoke signals.
1: I love that vision. I also wanted to share what I heard from Canadian Senator, Afrocentric social worker, and East Preston resident, Dr. Wanda Thomas-Bernard. Like Barbara, she was able to answer my question about what the future would look like with environmental justice without even a little pause.
10: We'd have greater happiness because we'd have people working more in harmony as opposed to working um, in competition. You know, we'd be working more in, in cooperation, I think. And if we had more environmental justice, we'd have a, a healthier environment, a healthier place for all of us. It means that we'll all be more physically and mentally uh, healthy as well. So we'd all be experiencing more positive health and well-being. Dr.
1: Bernard's vision is so lovely. To me, it sounds like a description of the relationships with each other and with the lands and waters that the Peace and Friendship Treaty set out for us here in Mi'kma'ki and that we've been exploring throughout this podcast series. makes me think of that amazing quote from Dr. Cornel West, the African-American philosopher, activist, and social critic, who said, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. I talked to Dr. Carolyn Finney a little bit about that idea and what it might have to do with environmental justice.
6: Justice has all these connotations in there, not all of them positive. And sometimes it's where people get resistant or, you know, you see them squinch up a little bit, like, oh, justice, you know. Um, the idea that it's lo- love being public, it's a thing we do in public. It's a thing we do together because we are the public, right? And so, and it is, it, it is a state of being. It is a state of mind. What would happen if it's not, again, not a goal? For me, the question, the thing that I want to say to it is, what if it was just part of a state of being in mind? It's love made public. So, if, I mean really, and really, I don't mean it in a corny way, what, well, but what does that look like if I'm feeling that love towards you and my neighbors and the community I live in and all the non human nature, the choices that I make um, about how I am in relationship with all those aspects of where I live, you know. What if that was always the way? So everything from legislation to the way we structure our um, you know, institutions and our curriculum and the activities that we put out there for us to do and behavior, the things that we attend to, if it came from that pre- premise that justice is left made public, that, uh, that's the state of mind I want to be living in. So it's, it's, it, we don't have to necessarily call out like environmental justice or social justice anymore because we are always attending to it in this full rich and complex way it, it is part of the fabric of who we are
1: i was reflecting on why it feels weird to talk about love when we're talking about environmental justice but it really is The most concise and true answer, I think. Because in the world we're living in, love really is an act of resistance. Maybe this is a little cheesy, but I think I'm okay with that. Because environmental justice, in its essence, really is all about attending to our relationships. Relationships are supposed to be reciprocal, right? But now we've got all this baggage and lost trust, so many amends to make. To make it messier, it sounds like this is work that we have to do together and in public. Before we wrap up, I want to share one more thought
7: from Taylor Paul. Just being on a path towards actual reconciliation will feel enough like reconciliation in our lifetimes because we'll know that we've at least done our part to pass it on for our children to do better and for their children to do even better. It's gonna be generations before we actually see healing in our cultures between our cultures on our lands and for any sort of country that emerges because I think it actually does need to change. It is going to take a change and it is going to be kind of disruptive to a lot of people in a lot of ways, but I think there are also a lot of people who are residents of Nova Scotia or the Maritimes who uh, understand that this needs to change, who are tired of the current system who don't really see government working for them and I think we have to retire the old way of doing things and I think it's not just indigenous people that understand that so I guess I guess I already see it happening I already see allyship there it's already a really important part of how things should move forward in the future because we already get it on a grassroots level on a on a friendship level we know what friendship and sharing and peace are
1: I love what Taylor said about getting it on a friendship level like we know how to love our friends and share with our friends for the most part right and I wonder how much of this environmental justice work grows outward from those little gestures those moments that feel small and vulnerable I feel like it shows up in the way we relate to each other in our organizations I feel like we see it in how we build relationships across difference, for sure, including with non-human nature. And all of this talk about futurisms makes me think about how it can show up in relationships across time, too, even, with our ancestors and our future generations. Valuing our relationships can help sustain us in the present, too, as we do the difficult work of acknowledging the hard truths that are rooted in the past, and the dismantling all of those harmful systems and institutions to make room for emerging new visions. I know I'm sounding vague and grandiose and cheesy, but I really do believe it's an important path to consider around how we get to a just future here in Mi'kma'ki, on Turtle Island and beyond. And I've got so much to learn about the treaties that govern these lands here, but I do feel that they are a relationship framework. They're a gift from our ancestors that could also help us in figuring some of these things out today. It's really hard to wrap up this series, Exploring Environmental Justice in Mi'kma'ki, And there's so much that we didn't get time to really dig into and talk about. But we have heard from so many brilliant folks on the front lines of loving and fighting for just futures on these lands. We've heard stories of injustice that are deeply rooted in systems of oppression like colonialism and white supremacy. And we've learned how the mainstream environmental movement has been complicit in some of these harms. I hope we all got to reflect a little bit about what these movements for things like indigenous self-determination, for reparations, for decolonization, all have in common. And that the concept of environmental justice is about so much more than just tacking some social justice considerations onto the environmental issues that have already been defined. If justice is what love looks like in public, I think we've got lots of work to do in our organizations and institutions. From what I've been hearing, it seems that learning to listen, but like, really listen with an open heart and mind is a key first step. For those of us in positions of power, of whiteness, learning to be accomplices to black, indigenous, and people of color, in realizing their own visions of just futures is also part of environmental justice. And like we've heard so many times, this means letting go, being willing to allow environmental justice to change everything. It's scary, but maybe it is how we heal our relationships with the land and with each other and how we allow for new and better futures to emerge. It was such a simple question a few years ago when I first asked it, what is environmental justice and what does it mean for the work of the more mainstream environmental movement? And I'm still not sure I can answer it exactly, but I am so grateful for the opportunity to have been able to chat with and and dream with so many people who've generously shared their own gorgeous and complex visions of what environmental justice is all about. What that has to do with things like reconciliation, reparations, decolonization, even sustainability. I hope this episode and the whole five-episode series has inspired you to listen a little differently, to ask your own good questions about what environmental justice could look like in the territory where you live. A giant thanks to all of the incredible voices shared in this episode and guiding me behind the scenes. Some of these folks include Dr. Wanda Thomas-Bernard, Erica Butler, Ariel Deranger, Dr. Carolyn Finney, Shia Ishak, Jen Graham, L. Jones, Lynn Jones, Barbara Lowe, Katherine Martin, Gabby Mills, Rebecca Moore, Michelle Paul, Taylor Paul, and Dr. Ingrid Waldron. I also need to shout out a thanks to social justice facilitator, healer and doula, Adrienne Marie Brown. A special thanks to everyone at Ecology Action Center for supporting me and asking these juicy questions, and to the Community Conservation Research Network. And further thanks to Nick Dorado for composing our theme music. Thanks to everyone, really, who's listened, who's generously shared their teachings, who's offered their ideas and their support and their love, all critical to me being able to put these episodes together to share with you. I'm Sadie Beaton, your host, signing off for now with love and curiosity. And I'm going to leave you with a song called Many Paths, written and performed by high school students at Coahuacatee's First Nation in Saskatchewan. It's part of an initiative called the Norwegian Tour.
13: Here, but unity is destiny with no fears, no hate, no pain, no enemies. My home's a place where I'll show you the better me. I want to take my life, roll the dice, get it right. People getting high every night just so we can feel all right. No direction as we keep it flowing, never knowing where we going. Feeling stuck, but I feel like there's something growing. We walk the land. Take her spirit through all horror stands. No gum, she showed me what to do, she brought me through My shyness, now I'm rhyming, watch me walk
4: in truth
13: I found my peace, the land of living skies Riding through the hills, to heal this heart of mine Running from the pain, I wanna feel alive Searching
10: for the way to show the beauty of my pride. Once upon a time, there was a boy who was bullied. Avoided everybody and nobody was looking. He was raised on the res. He loved to go hunting. He tried to keep the faith, but at home he was struggling. He had a dream one night that
13: he would be a star. But he woke up to some news that really broke his heart. His could come past and it was tough as a child. Cause he knew inside that he would really miss her smile. But he listened to her words and she gave him the patience to live in a way that would honor no creation that gave him the strength that it allowed him to grow to love himself love his life and love his home we want the land. my uncle to judge it hurt losing my sister told me pain isn't love i know i want to be different i'm gonna keep my head up and make better decisions you have to walk in my shoes to understand my position i'm at don't know which way to turn should i stay should i go should i change first i needed help i needed love damn the pain it hurt so i'm saying this now i need you to make this work there's one thing that a native people lack. The love and care i so unfair as I'm looking back. When I turn 13, I cut my long hair. They see my white skin, but they always stop there. The looks can be deceiving. I'll show you the real meaning. This is the message that a people spent years bleeding. So many still hurting, looking for a better feeling. Vision of a future, we will forever dream in. We, we walk the land.